And I think that song is pretty, uh, pretty applicable right now. I don't want to get adjusted to this world. I think there's a lot of churches being adjusted by the government right now. And um, I think it's, gonna, it, it's a time where men are going to have to rise up and um, do, the, do the work that God's called us to do. I think God needs some tough men. I think we're facing some crisis. We're certainly facing a spiritual crisis. If we're not facing a governmental crisis, which we certainly are there too, but we're facing, facing a spiritual crisis in our country, and it's gonna, the fix for it is that men get up and start preaching what they should have been preaching the whole time. We stop trying to be people pleasers, stop worrying what man might do to us, and start proclaiming what the truth of the gospel is without fear or favor, right? So you're all here tonight, and you're going to hear the word of God. Not my words. I hope I can get my words as much out of it as possible, but you need to hear the word of God and be adjusted by the word of God. And if it bothers you, talk to God about it. Not me. I, I'm not trying to, to bring anything but the, the truth of the gospel. And I think that there's so many problems that have arisen because we got off of Christ being the center. Jesus is the center of everything. Amen? That's what we believe. That's what we proclaim. I don't think that we're the only church that holds truth. I certainly don't believe that. But I want to be one of them that does. And I don't... I, we, you know, we don't, I don't think really anybody watches but our own church people on Facebook, so we're not trying to preach at the world. We're trying to encourage our body to grow. Everybody who believes that, say amen. amen. So I want you to open to the book of Matthew, the 26th chapter. And I want to cover something tonight. I had jumped out of this thought. I'd been preaching... Um, a month or so ago for a few, a few times uh, concerning the anxieties and the fears and the distresses that come in our life. And something I wanted to continue with is this thought, and I had put it off because we kind of preached a little seasonal teaching there a few weeks ago, and, and I just felt like the Lord really put on my heart tonight. I don't know why, what you need to hear. Uh, we're all pretty close, but we don't, we don't ever know what's going on in the hearts of people. But I really felt the Lord lead me this direction over the last couple weeks. And so I want to I pick up tonight in the 26th verse, or sorry, the 36th verse of the 26th chapter. And, and Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Say, deeply distressed. deeply distressed. Then he said unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face, and he prayed, O my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It's a really important point I want to bring out tonight. I want you to look over at the same account in the book of Luke and the 22nd chapter and the 41st verse. And it just gives us a little bit more color here. So let's look at this. And he 
was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven and strengthened him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Tonight, I want to talk to you about the anguish of the soul. Lord, we ask you that you would help me to deliver this. God, I, I want to speak what you want spoken. We just want to be a vessel tonight, God. I pray that you give us ears to hear. It's hard to respond sometimes, so give us hearts to respond. God, help us to, to be readied in our heart, to avenge all of the disobedience in our life with obedience. And that's what we want to hear your word tonight, and we want to obey your word. We want to be doers of your word and not hearers only, deceiving our own selves. We want to be doers of your word, Lord, and we pray these things in your name. Everybody say amen. amen. I want to point out something that you may have never thought about tonight, and that is that Jesus suffered great mental distress on the night that he, before he was crucified. Great mental distress. We think of our Lord as, as almost exempt because we know that he's God in flesh and we think of him as exempt. But the scripture says that he was tried in the same way that we are. Uh, we've talked about this and I don't have time to go into all these areas tonight. I don't think that, that the Lord was tempted with, with the desire to run off and have some sexual relationship. I don't really think that's where his temptation was. But the temptation that really is summed up for every one of us if you think of the word lust, even the word means strong passion. We always associate that to be some sexual thing, but it really means strong passion, an overwhelming passion. Some people have a great amount of lust for money. They have a lust for power. Some certainly have a lust for physical things and, and relationships, but, but the will is the place that we struggle with. That's the greatest point of passion in our life is our will versus God's will. This is, a, this is something that has to be dealt with constantly on a, daily, on a daily basis in our life. And Jesus suffered mental distress just like you suffer mental distress when you're fighting your will versus God's will. Because that really is where that distress comes from. That's where the problems come from in our life. Is I want to do something and God says, no, I want you to do something else. Come on, somebody say amen. Don't look at me like you're God's first cousin. You know you go through this, the battle for your heart, the battle for your mind. It's, it's not that Satan has that much power over you. Satan is just tempting you, James said, with what you already want to do. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed satan's just coming along and presenting you with the opportunity to do what you already want to do and if you're waiting a little rabbit trail here but if you're waiting until you're tempted to start talking to god about it to start talking to god about his will versus your will you probably already lost the battle that is through daily prayer, and we'll get there in, in a little bit. Daily putting down of myself, putting down of my, my passions, and, and crucifying this flesh man daily. That's what the scripture tells us to do in countless places. 
But Jesus suffered great mental distress. And there are times that we go through things in our life that feel too heavy to bear. When we lose someone, when we suffer a great uncertainty of how we're going to, I know we as men, I'll speak to the men for a minute, but if we're in a situation where we're trying to figure out how we're going to be able to provide for our families, it's, maybe we're looking at losing a job and we don't know how ends are going to meet, that becomes a great heaviness on our life. Come on, men. We, we suffer things, we go through things that sometimes can feel too heavy to bear, they can feel too difficult for us to get through. But I want you to know tonight that Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. He was suffering from great emotional, heavy pain. He was in agony, the scripture says. The other word we can use here is anguish. And so he prayed more intently to the point that he developed a condition which is called hematohydrosis. This is a condition that is not just exclusive to our Lord, but it is possible when someone is under great immense pressure and they are torn inside that the, the capillaries that bring blood to the sweat glands rupture and literally those pores begin to produce blood droplets. This is not happening. Anybody ever had that happen? I'd say you haven't been in that much great stress <laughs> because it's possible, but only under, under these immense conditions. And this is, the, this is the exact situation that we find Jesus in. He was in agony. He was in distress. What causes this great distress in Jesus? I think about this. He, he had to know the pain that was coming to his mother. All your moms can relate to the thought of one of your children even being hurt. I know you all flip out if somebody ever falls down and skins their knee and you're thinking, you know, they're going to die. And Jesus has got to be looking ahead, knowing what he's facing and thinking about the, the, the immense suffering that his family is going to go through. He knows the fear and the doubt that is going to, going to grip the disciples that now he has spent three and a half years with, educating them, teaching them. He's got to completely re-disciple them and educate them about the kingdom of God. They think it's this physical thing. They're always talking to him about a physical kingdom. When are you going to establish your kingdom? Hey, when you get into your kingdom, we want to sit on the right and the left. Or are you going to bring your kingdom now? Let's call down fire and destroy all the people who don't believe. They think it's this physical thing. And for three and a half years, Jesus has been trying to teach his disciples that what they thought about Judaism, the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets was all talking about him. And tomorrow, they're going to come to grips with the fact that their Lord and Savior is dead. They have no hope except the words that he has spoken, but no proof that what he has said is the truth. For three days, they're going to wonder whether or not he was a liar. Every one of them is going to deny him. They're going to have their complete world turned upside down. And he loves them. Jesus cares about them, and I think this is causing great distress in his life. He also knew the shame. 
And he knew the scorn that would come upon him as he was hung on a cross as a criminal, stripped naked for the world to see, despised and rejected. People would think they were doing God a favor by killing him. And they would esteem him stricken and smitten of God. This is causing distress in his life. Because he knows why he's there. He knows that he has come to seek and save that which is lost. And yet those who are going to murder him are going to do it thinking they're doing a favor to religion. Thinking they're helping things out. And all of this is causing agony in him. And so he prays. Father, if it is possible that this cup pass, if there's another way, then let's do it another way. But the key phrase, and this is what I really want to focus on tonight, is he, he says, but not my will, but your will be done. Sarah didn't know what I'm preaching tonight, and she sings a bunch of songs about surrender and struggling with my desires versus God's desires. Jesus already knew that he was going to suffer. This isn't new to him. He, he says to them, for this cause came I into this world. He knows that he's going to die. He has shared it with them multiple times. This is not foreign to him. This is not some strange idea. He would know the scriptures and he would understand that he is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He says to them, no man takes my life, but I lay it down willingly. So what is this task? The task is that you have to understand where Jesus is speaking from. Why is he talking about my will? This, this can become a conflict. And I don't want to get super deep into theology in, in this area tonight. But talk about this conflict between the two different wills. And, and really what we're seeing here very, very clearly is that Jesus now is speaking as a man. The pastor talks about this from time to time. There are different ways that Jesus speaks. Sometimes he speaks as the Son of Man, sometimes he speaks as the Son of God, and sometimes he speaks as God Almighty. And right now he is speaking as a man. As a man, his desire is not to go to a cross. As a man, his desire is not to suffer the shame and the scorn. As a man, his desire is not to leave the relationship that he has with his disciples on this earth. But yet, he already knows the answer. I really think that Jesus, when he says this, is speaking for you and for me. Because our issue is the same issue. We, we are not God. We are human. And yet, we are wrestling with God's will for our life versus our desires for our life. 
And Jesus gives us the example of how we deal with this kind of situation. We come to the Lord when we are struggling, when we are concerned, when we're trying to make decisions, and the answer is not, God, this is what I want to happen. The answer is, God, not my will, but your will be done. I'm surrendering my desires for your desires. I begin to think quickly and uh, just thinking about that. And the scripture says that in, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says in verse 2 that, that he endured the cross, despising the shame understanding what was going to happen, he still endured the cross knowing that he had to submit this fleshly man will to the godness, to the direction of the Lord, the direction of the Almighty in his life in order for this to work. I want you to look really quickly at Philippians chapter 2. You you all know this passage of scripture, I think it is so poignant in this exact concept 2 and 5 says, let this mind, everybody say mind, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking upon him the form of a servant, and coming into the likeness of man. And being found in an appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Somewhere along the line, Christendom Christendom lost the concept that we have a cross to bear. If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to make it in a life-pursuing Jesus, it's going to be done from a cross. You're going to have to lay your life down. I don't know why we have offered salvation at no cost. I don't know why we have told countless people, just say a prayer and everything's taken care of in your life. I don't know why. It's not found in the scripture. But it works when you're trying to get a lot of people. It works when you're trying to build mega churches. What's not popular is the truth. And the truth is that you've got to make a decision about whether you want to follow Jesus with everything in your life and surrender every kingdom, every desire, every thought to him. I don't know why we stop telling the truth. Certainly it's not just happened in the last 50 years in our country, but it has It's funny, if you go back into the early 1900s, I don't even know what denominations were what, but everybody was preaching the reality that you needed to surrender to Jesus. And now we offer something completely different. And there is nothing, there is no message being preached to deal with our will. will. God deals with your sin upon the cross. You can't do anything about your sin. You couldn't wash your sin away. God deals with your sin when he sheds his blood on the cross. But you deal with your will when you lay your life down upon the cross that Jesus said you've got to take up. 
And frankly, you don't get one without the other. Well, I want the blood of Jesus, but I don't want to surrender my will. No, that doesn't apply. Jesus said, you'll know that you love me when you keep my commandments. If you're waiting for God to come along and say some things you liked so that you get up and do them, you're going to be waiting a while. I think I pretty much found out that God doesn't say anything I like. God always is coming along challenging me because my flesh is opposed to God. The scripture says it's at war with God. It will not be subject to God. But I have to put my flesh down and say I'm not going to be obedient to the desires of my flesh. So Jesus emptied himself. He's in the garden the night before he is crucified praying as a man. The anguish that Jesus is experiencing is the anguish of the soul. I want to think about the soul for a minute. How many, just as a point of reference, have heard the term, he saved my soul? Anybody ever heard that term? It's a pretty common theological term. I think that's something we've all heard and all used, and I think it's true. The scripture says so. But I want to give you some, some maybe some understanding, just so you can understand what this is about. I think there are two parts to our soul, or two faculties that we possess in our soul, we are made up of body, soul, and spirit. And we know the body, we can see it. We can't see the spirit, we can't see our soul. The spirit is the life inside of us, but the soul is what we would say is the seat of emotion or that place of our judgment. But it really, I think we can divide it into two parts. The first thing that we find in the soul is understanding. This is the area capable of perception and speculation, the area where we judge and discern things. We all have this. We assess a situation and we make judgment. We as parents do this all the time. We're always assessing. I've told my kids so many times, there's times where we'll, you know, hey dad, can I go do this? And, and maybe we've let them do it. But at this point, I don't feel right about it. I don't feel like it's going to work. And, and I'm assessing that situation. And I don't know why I'm I'm independent. I don't have any preconceived notion. It's something I've allowed him to do before, but there's something troubling my spirit, and I just say, no, I, I, I don't think we're going to do that this time. It's an unbiased place, but then there's the second part. We have that understanding, but the second part of our soul is the will, and this is the area where we don't behold things as indifferent bystanders or unaffected spectators, but we see things by either like or dislike. In this area, we do not simply perceive and view things, but are in some way inclined with respect to what we are viewing. We could call this an inclination. Some of you have an inclination towards some things, and some of you have an inclination towards others. It's part of the will. Let's get it real simple. Some of you drive Chevys, some drive Fords, some drive Dodge. Some drive something else. That place of a preconceived notion, a like or a dislike that is already built in. How many, how many have multiple children in this room? You have multiple children. How many have discovered of those multiple children that every one of them have pre-programmed different ideas about how they like to do things? It's already there. It's like and dislike of certain things. We laugh and... Last night, Carrie said, I don't know what to make for dinner. She said, 
Oh, I, I know what I'll make. And before she could get it out of her mouth, Reagan says, please not spaghetti. <laughs> and for everybody who knows Reagan, she doesn't like red sauce. I don't know why. She doesn't like it on anything. I, I mean, we, we, okay, well, you're eating noodles without the sauce, I guess. I don't know. That's what we're having for dinner. But it's funny. I don't know where she got that from. Everybody else has no problem with it. Maybe she's got a problem with Italians. I don't know. But she, she's got this preconceived notion about this. And there are some things... I've heard some men get up here and preach at times that talk about there are some things that I battle that they're just in me, right, Austin? There's some things I battle that are just in me that I don't really want to be in me, but they're there, and I've got to fight them, and it's a daily battle. It's just already there in me. It's my will. Some things I'm independent about. Some things I don't have a preference on. Cake? It doesn't matter. Bring it. Aaron was eating some popcorn the other night, pulling out of a bag, and it said skinny on it. I said, I'm out. (laughs) If it says skinny, I don't want anything to do with it. Those are preconceived things. Some things I'm indifferent about. Some things I, I just, I have my will. And this is the area where we exercise this inclination. This area is called the mind, or we see it in the scripture even related to as the heart. Out of the abundance of the, the mouth speaks. So when you're talking, you're really talking your will. You listen closely enough to what people are saying. Nah, I'm not sure, sure there's some stray thoughts that come out of our mouth from time to time. But you can hear what a person's will is by listening to what they're talking about. That's why it's really important that your children need to hear you talking about the Lord constantly. This needs to be a point of conversation. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth. Out of the heart are the issues of life. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought him not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. What that sounds like to me is that you're going to have to surrender your mind and become a servant of the Almighty. How many would agree with that? It's a scripture. Did I do any harm to the scripture there? No, it's very clear. My point is that it is our will that causes the greatest battle against the purpose of God in our life. It's your will. It is there in our preconceived ideas, in our raw emotions, in the areas where we have already have an inclination for something or someone or for our families or for our stuff or for the status quo. We don't want anything to change. It is in this place where we agonize and we wrestle between our will and the will of God in our lives. The most difficult battle you will fight is not against what man can do to you. I know there's a, lo- there's a lot of thought, and, I, and we are all concerned about this, about what might be coming. There's legislation in the pipelines to begin to crack down on churches in this country. It already is in Canada. And usually what happens there, we're not too far behind, especially with this nut mess we got going on right now. 
And we can get all concerned, and and I am, I don't want to see that happen. But at the same time, our fear, we don't need to worry about the, the, the threat coming from the outside. Nobody can take Jesus out of my heart. If they come in and shut this place down, say, you can't meet here, we're putting armed guards on the door. They can't take the koinonia away from us. They can't take away our fellowship in Christ. That, that's not possible. The greatest battle we face is not on the outside. The battle where we face is on the inside. A house divided against itself. A double-minded man. Does he have any stable ways? No. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. So how do we deal with that? Well, there's been a lot of thought about how to deal with the double-mindedness. And one of the, one of the greatest things that I, I, don't, I, I don't understand, and, and you know, Lord, I don't intend to offend John Calvin came up with a way to, sol- to solve the double-minded, double-willed thought. John Calvin coming from Martin Luther, who reforms, comes off the Catholic Church. He's still a Catholic, he's just reformed Catholic. And John Calvin is still a Catholic, he's just reformed Catholic too. And John Calvin creates a doctrine in which man has no will. But constantly, throughout the whole scripture, we are seeing God talking about dealing with our will. How many have heard the angels have no will? Anybody ever heard that? Well, the angels have no will. That's how we're different than the angels. Well, there's a problem because a third of the angels said, um, we want to be higher than what we are. And so it sounds like they had some will. Our situation, you can start in the very first chapters of Genesis. And dad and I were just talking about this yesterday. And it's so beautiful. You ever wonder why God puts little tiny things in there and it colors, it seasons us, helps us to see something. In the very beginning, God creates the animals, he creates the plants, he sits Adam down after he creates them, and it says that he walked the animals by him in order to see what he would name them. If God already knew, why would he wait and see? Because there is a will involved in man from the very beginning. God is not interested in robots. God is looking for a people who willingly serve him. That's what this whole relationship is about. God, I prefer you. What does love mean anyway? It means to prefer something over something else. I cannot love God if I have no preference in it. The only thing that allows me to love is the fact that I get to choose. I love Carrie because I chose Carrie. I think there's a lot of love in an arranged marriage. The fact is that God gives us that freedom in order to see what we will do with it. Came up, I like to call him, and you you all should study this out. It's so clear, it's so evident. But I like to call John Calvin the unrepentant murderer. Because that's literally what he was. A man came along, Michael Servetus, who preached something that John Calvin thought was heresy. 
John Calvin says, if he ever shows up in Geneva, I will have him killed. Does that sound like a great godly theological person that should be deciding the fate of our, of our thought process about God? And you know what? He did it. He showed up. Michael Servetta sat on the back pew listening. He just wanted to have a conversation. They had some different opinions, difference in, in how they saw God, and he wanted to have a conversation with John Calvin. John Calvin had arrested and had mercy on him. They were going to cut his head off, but instead John said, no, let's, let's burn him with green wood. We'll be merciful to him. If I get the choice, if they ever ask you, what is, just cut my head off. I don't want to be burned with green wood. That's not any mercy for me. And then went on to write a book in defense of it. Now, the, the answer to all that is this. Well, he was a man of his time. And that's just what Ben did back then. And all murderers will have their part in the lake of fire. So I don't know. I don't know where we're going with that. The point is this. He created a doctrine in which God chooses who's going to be saved before time, before somewhere, before you're born, and it's not anything to do with your will. It's up to God whether you'll be saved or not. Well, then I'll ask you a question. Why are we standing here tonight? Why are we preaching the gospel? There is no good news to the person who didn't get selected. This would be bad news. And then I got another question. Why is this scripture filled, I, I don't know, the thousands of ifs, I-F, conditional clauses. Thousands and thousands of conditional clauses that say if you do this, then I will do this. Well, if we don't get to choose in the matter, then why would God say if? Because certainly God wants us to choose him. His grace is amazing. His mercy is unbelievable. And he shows that toward us, but he's not forcing you to do anything. He's given you the free will. Multitudes and multitudes of millions are wasting their lives away, serving the devil, all messed up. So he places, Calvin did, he placed those who would be saved entirely in the hands of God and further states that every acceptance or rejection of God is predetermined by God and every action taking place is the result of God making it happen. And if you believe that, then you're going to have a hard time answering why are little children being molested and raped right now? God's making that happen? No, that's the will of man. But, but the word of God is so clear. I, mean, I, could, I could give you endless scripture, but let's just cover a few of them. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God is long-suffering, not willing, everybody say willing, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, that's a problematic word, too, because you know what the heart of the root of the word repentance means? It's metanoia in the Greek, which broken down simply is with the mind. What it means is to change your mind about what you were thinking. How can you repent if you don't have the freedom of choice? If your thoughts were not your own, how could you repent? 
But God is long-suffering. Say, well, why hasn't God poured out his wrath on San Francisco in that mess? Why hasn't God poured? I, I remember, I think it was Ann Graham, Billy Graham's wife, said, if God doesn't judge America for its sins, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom. I don't think she's far off. But why do... Why do the heathen rage? Isn't this what David said? Why, why do we continue to see the mess around us? Because God is long-suffering. His desire is that no one would perish, but that every man would be given the opportunity of repentance and salvation through surrender. John 3.16, one of the, the most famous verse in the scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, there's a problem Whosoever believes, that means anyone. Whoever believes in him will be saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, God desires that all men would be saved. We either have to throw these scriptures out of our Bible or we got to take them into an account. Romans 10, 13 says that Whosoever, that word again, that's a large word that means anybody. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then one of my favorite passages, Luke 9, 23, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. This we love, everybody loves to go to the Roman road. And, and I'm going to tell you this, if Literally, if you have no choice in the matter, we don't need to pray a prayer. We don't need to read the Bible. We don't need to go to church. Let's go out and, man, let's live it up. If your eternity is predetermined, or, or even better yet, we wonder why we got a bunch of kids growing up in all kinds of churches now. We used to have contained this thought to one denomination, which I won't name, but now we can expand it to all. That we got a bunch of kids that we have told them one of two things. Either... You're going to heaven or hell and it doesn't matter what happens. You can't change it. Okay, well then I'm going to live my life. Or two, you prayed a prayer when you were eight years old and if you really meant it, it doesn't matter how you live the rest of your life. And then we wonder why our kids are living like hellions. We wonder why they want nothing to do with God and we're trying to fall and rely on some hope that maybe they made it based upon some prayer or pre-selection. When we can have Great evidence of the work of Jesus Christ in our young people's lives if we will just tell them the truth. Tell them the truth that Jesus saves, that he loves you, that he wants to wash you clean and make you brand new and you can have hope. My kids, I couldn't tell you the first time they prayed some sinner's prayer at an altar. I don't even know. They've been in church their whole lives. And all three of them sit here tonight. And I've got fairly good evidence because of the surrender of their life. I feel pretty confident about where they're going. Do I pray for them? Oh, yeah. I pray that the Lord keep them and that their will doesn't overtake God's will. And I, I pray all of those things. But we can't take confidence in some false hope. One of my favorite sayings. It is what it is. I mean, the gospel is what it is. I see a lot of people with, with circumstances change, preachers change how they feel about things because their kids didn't line up. Now all of a sudden they got a whole different gospel they're preaching. It is what it is. And if my kids walk away from the Lord, it is what it is. I'm not changing 
the gospel for them. But we've given them life. Why do we even try to raise them right, except that we believe in raising them right, it will point them to Jesus. My job is to draw the bow back and to sit them on their course, and they get to choose. You've been directed, but now you get to choose your flight. Are you going to hit the mark? Their will is involved. We've lost a generation to this world. America has lost a generation to this world because we have told them it does not matter how you live your life. But God says it does. The scripture in the New Testament says that every man's going to be judged according to his works. Oh, Pastor Rodney, that's a works gospel. James said, you show me your faith without your works. Show it to me. I prayed a prayer. Nope, that's not it. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You look at what somebody's doing. You look at how somebody's living. You're going to find really quick whether or not they believe in the words of Jesus. Really easy. We're in a spiritual mess because we have told people that salvation is offered without ever instructing them in the gospel. And I, and I want to say, I, I'm closing, I'm getting done. But I want to say this too. There's, there's been a misconception we want to hold mass rallies, maybe have some big supposed Christian singer come in, tell some really sad story, get people crying, and then get them to repeat some words and call that salvation. But in fact, Jesus never instructed his disciples to get people to say a prayer. What did he instruct them to do? He said, go and make disciples of all nations. What does that mean? Well, let's just dissect that word. And when you dissect that, you're going to get the word discipline. Teach people the discipline of living for Jesus. Tell the young ones that, that separating yourself and living holy unto God is living the good life. Don't lament the fact that you can no longer go out and do what you used to do when you were in the world. Proclaim the beauty and the fullness of joy and the satisfaction and the peace that passes all understanding that comes from living separate and sold out and holy unto Jesus. So I'm here to debunk the myth tonight. Your relationship with Jesus, listen, you're going to love this, is 100% based upon your will. It's exactly the opposite of John Calvin's thoughts. It is 100% based upon whether you choose to follow Jesus with everything in your heart. That's what it is. And this is why, before Jesus was ever tempted, he fasted. Now, I want to encourage you with the fasting calendar. The first thing is don't walk around all forlorn. Jesus said when you fast, don't, don't make it known like that you're sad and, oh, I, I fasted today. <laughs> I am fasting today. Today was our day. And I will tell you this. 
my flesh still hates fasting. <laughs> I like to eat. My, my, I, I bet you if we did this probably once a week for the rest of my life, I still wouldn't like it. I have another observation. Instead of calling it a fast, they need to call it a slow. Because the day goes by. You want your day to slow down? Fast. I have just, it slows way down for you. But I love this. Get, get this picture in your mind. And now dad already covered this, but I got to cover it again because it fits so perfectly. But fasting is not a hunger strike to get God to do what you want him to do. That kind of was the old Pentecost. I can speak to that. That's what we grew up in, the old Pentecostal thing. And so when you got something you really want done, what do you do? Fast. Boy, that makes God do it. Well, if you're fasting for that reason, I'm just going to, the only thing you're going to get is hungry. <laughs> fasting is not a hunger strike to get God to do what you want him to do. Fasting is a hunger strike so that you can let your belly know that it's not in control and God is. Because one of the strongest desires in our lives, I don't know if there's anything stronger than wanting to eat. It's just natural. You don't have to teach anybody to do it. It just comes naturally. We all want to eat. And, and the problem is, is that our appetite and this appetite, when it goes unchecked, it begins to invade other areas of our life. And so we grow up feeding ourselves, especially in America, we grow up feeding ourselves whenever we have the inclination to do so. So when you fast, don't think that you're getting something super spiritual. You're just surrendering your will. I always say this, we lift our hands. I don't lift my hands because it's some super, I grew up in the super spiritual stuff. People running around the church and falling out and doing all that stuff. And I, okay, whatever. If you're excited about the Lord, I'm okay with that, I guess. Don't make a scene. Don't, don't make it about you. But I'm going to tell you something. My raising my hand isn't that I'm being super spiritual. I, I literally am surrendering. Saying, God, you're bigger than me. You're in control. I'm laying down my will and my desires. In order to remind my flesh that it must submit, it's not the shot caller. It's not the boss. That's why we fast. And this is why Jesus prayed. To show us how to get our flesh into submission to the will of God. Again, prayer is not a laundry list of things that you want God to do. The disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. I love the scripture. It says, the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man availeth much, has much impact. So Lord, teach us to pray so we can be effective. How many want to just be able to say something in prayer and it happens? Wouldn't that be awesome? Debt be gone. I mean, forget the fact that I haven't been disciplined in my life and I haven't taking care of my debt and don't want to work on that end of it. I just want to proclaim it. I want to pray it, that God sends the stuff in. I'm going to sit on the couch and God, God's just going to send in all my provision. That sounds good. Not the gospel. It's not a laundry list of things that we want done. So his disciples come to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray. And the first thing he does is he says, pray in this way, our Father who art in heaven, beginning from the very outset to recognize his authority is way bigger than mine. 
hallowed be your name. My name's nothing. Then what? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. I want to revisit a thought for a second. If we don't have a will involved in this thing, then Jesus is a liar. Everybody likes it when I say stuff like that. I get some really cool looks. <laughs> How can you say that? Exactly. How can we say that? Either Jesus knows what he's talking about. He understands what we need to be praying. God, I need to put my will down. Either that's true or he's a liar. We can't have it both ways. And I'm frankly going to stake all of my belief, all of my eternal destiny on the words of Jesus. I'm not really that concerned with what somebody who came along thousands of years later decided about my will. I'm going to take the word of the Lord. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. I'm closing with this. Hear a lot talking today about experiences with God. I want to get people to have an experience with God. I just heard a preacher. I, I like him. He's a worship leader and a, and a preacher, and, and I like him. I, I felt like the, he's had some really good stuff through the years, and I, I don't mean to be super critical, so I won't give his name, but, but he said, I want to make sure that, that people have an encounter with God. God's not interested in a one-night stand. And the Christian faith has become that. Talk about having an affair with the world. No, really, we're just having an affair with God. We live in the world, we live for the world, we do the desires and the dictates of the world, we, we live for our flesh, for every belly God, for every desire, we shut nothing out, and then we have some little experience with God sometime. But God's not a one-night stand. God is interested in long-term relationship. That's why the scripture describes us as being his bride. Not his concubine. We're not called his prostitute. We are called the bride of Christ because the bride is a committed relationship. A permanent relationship. You know, I didn't intend this necessarily to hit on this time, but we literally are on the first Sunday of the year. And like I said, God's not concerned about time, but we think time means something. And so this is the new year. And pastor talking about it today, his desire that, that we would be filled more and more with the Spirit of God. And I want to I, I encourage you. Our will is the problem. Our will is what gets in the way. Our will can come in so many shapes. Sometimes it comes in the form of something that we learned when we were a child. Something that grandma taught us and we think, well, grandma taught it must be true. And frankly, grandma doesn't weigh into this doesn't really matter what Uncle Joe thought. It, it doesn't matter. Do you have a passion in your heart that says, Jesus, we could get all in the word games and semantics, and, and I've talked to a lot of you know, different preachers, and I don't intend to argue. I don't want to go out and try to set people straight. I think there's a lot of people who believe a lot of different things, some different things than what I do that love the Lord, and that we're all going to the same place. 
This isn't a point of argument. This is a point of instruction for this body. How do we live our life this year? With more passion? With more surrender? John the Baptist, understanding his situation, understanding that his calling was to be the forerunner, and that now Jesus was there, Jesus was anointed, Jesus was beginning his ministry, and so it meant the end of John the Baptist's ministry. And his response to that is this, I must decrease so that he can increase. What our community needs, what our friends need, what our family needs, is we need to see less of me and more of him. That's what this world needs right now. If we could sum it up and we can look around our little world that we live in, our, our, our jobs, our sphere of influence, I can't worry about what other churches are doing. I can't worry about what other places are doing. We at Little Echoes of Calvary haven't been called to win the world. We don't have a global ministry. All I can worry about is making sure that in my sphere of influence, beginning in my home, I believe the home is the microcosm of everything that is supposed to happen in the church. It needs to start in my home, that I need to decrease, that I need to get out of the way and let Jesus be glorified in my life, that I can be a better husband and a better father, a better godly example through this year. Say, well, Pastor Rodney, you're pretty good. I'm, I, I'm not judging myself based on myself. It doesn't matter what I've been. And then I begin to let that begin to flow into my children's life and into my wife's life. And then hopefully they begin to let that flow into those around their lives. And I come into this place and I meet with you and I decrease so that he can increase. The bigger we get, the smaller he gets. We're not, we're not about trying to build numbers in this church. And I'm fine, we love people coming in. We, hopefully we have to build another Sanctuary because we got so many people who are on fire for Jesus. But we're not trying to build numbers. We're trying to build Christ. Paul said, I labor until Christ be formed in you. Decrease. Decrease. It's your choice. It's your option. I want you just to close your eyes right now. I don't do this most of the time. You know I don't do this because I, I don't think that everything is solved by a one-time response but I do think there are times where we need to make some response to the Lord. And no, nobody's looking around, and I'm, I'm not going to call anybody out. But I just want you to think in your heart right now, do I want decrease? Do, am I willing to lay down my will in order that I can find God's will for my life? And if that's you, whether you've done this a hundred times or not, I just want you to slip your hand up to the Lord and say, God, I'm willing to do whatever it is that you want for my life. Whatever it is. Now you're making a vow. Don't do this in haste. We're making a vow to the Lord and we're saying, God, see my heart, see my hand, see my, see my actions, my mind, Lord, here. I'm making a commitment to you. Remind me when I start trying to get too big. Remind me when I start trying to do my own thing. God, and help me to decrease as you can increase, Jesus. 